Hello, and welcome to Down to Sally's Cove, a collection of stories about Newfoundland and Labrador by the late Ella Manuel and read by me, Anthony Berger. I'm the editor of my mother's writings about the history and rich culture of the places and people she knew and loved. Many of these stories she read on local and national radio in the 1940s to 1970s. The challenges Ella Manuel had to face in building her new house on the hill were as nothing compared with the frustrations in getting it connected the next year to electricity. Here is her story of the electricity kerfuffle. So now I had my own house, and since there was no electricity in the village except for two diesel engines that provided power for the merchants' houses, I didn't feel deprived. I bought two kerosene lamps that hung on the wall and had tin reflectors so that they adequately lit bathroom and bedroom, and an Aladdin lamp which cast cold white light over the living room and created the blackest shadows I've ever seen. Only later did I discover that the Aladdin required constant attention, for too much or too little gas caused the incandescent mantle to glow dangerously and burn up, or turn sooty and throw smoke into the room. After being close to asphyxiation twice through falling asleep while reading, I condemned this contraption. But cold, on my stove, which burned oil, heated the water, and the house, I cooked my food. The snag was that I had to go outside to draw oil from my barrel, and so spent most of the morning cleaning and filling lamps and filling my stove reservoir. And then I bought a kerosene heater, which by dint of wrapping oneself around it gave it a little warmth. It was now late fall, and I couldn't at that late date install a wood stove, because that required a second chimney, for the one on my stove was not only inadequate, but I would have had to drape pipes all over the house to reach it. I had visions that I could keep warm by running the hot water through a pipe to my bedroom wall and tearing down part of the bedroom wall to let in the warmth of the water heater. Somehow I survived. And then electricity came to the village in the form of a huge, ugly, smelly, and noisy generating plant with wires draped all over the place. My bitterest enemy then became power poles, of which there were soon hundreds in the village, thirty feet high, most of them. Em's barn was still standing at the bottom of the field, so I thought I would have my meter installed in it and would lay some wires across the meadow so that I would not have poles around the house to spoil my view. The electricity men took a dim view of that. They never heard of wires going underground and weren't about to learn. Ella's phobia about wires obstructing her views of the bay came to the fore during a brief excursion into teaching high school in Woody Point. She asked her students to write an essay about some issue of local concern. Knowing her passionate hatred of electric and telephone wires, they all identified this as the burning problem of the day. For some months I held out, but came the late fall with its dark days and I was desperate, so I said, okay, I'll have electricity, bring it straight up through the woods, along the cemetery road, and into the house. Then when I came home late one afternoon with the sun gleaming on the tablelands and shadows in the valley, I looked out my window and said to myself sadly, it's the last time I shall see this in its purity, for a large hole had been prepared exactly in the middle of my view and my lovely white birch near the house had been lopped off. 
That night I couldn't sleep until daybreak when I said aloud to myself, But I don't have to have electricity, and comforted I slept. By the start of the workday I said to the electricity men that I'd changed my mind. John Jellicoe, who was helping outside, and shook his head and said, Can't say as I blame you, my dear, my friend forever. I'd already demonstrated too much eccentricity for comfortable communication to anyone else in the village. But the nice power company needed my dollars. They suddenly broke down and said if I would lay the wire in a pipe across my fields and buried it deep, they'd connect me with the power line. So I bought 300 feet of plastic water pipe, hired Jim and Jimmy, and went at it. They spent a day or more shoving the wire through and buried it. Oh, miracle of miracles, I now had 110-volt electricity. I spent the next six months gloating. But not too long afterwards, the snowplow came too close to the side of the road and cut the pipe and the live wire. The operator came close to electrocution. When I had to go away for a while, I thought it only prudent to have my meter removed rather than pay for unused power. When the meter man came to take it, he mumbled something about having to get a permit from Cornerbrook before it could be returned to me. Well, I knew the wiring in the house was sound, so I dismissed the matter. Little did I know. As soon as I returned the next year, I telephoned Cornerbrook for an inspector. He came on his own good time, all concerned with his authority, looked at the meter, and asked me was the wire underground at the customer's request or the company's. And then he said he'd have to have a little bit of correspondence with the meter installer. So I spent the next two days, hour by weary hour, phoning the meter man and never finding him. The mail brought an official document from Cornerbrook. The power must come off the customer's own pole, and I had to have 220-volt wiring. Then I could have my electricity back. I went into shock. But after a few nights' sleep, aided by a good stiff tots of rum, my courage returned. So I went all the way, a hundred and sixty miles, to see the inspector, who was more important than ever, and who said there was absolutely no regulation permitting me to put power lines underground. And if I didn't like it, I could write the chief inspector, which I did, and had a prompt reply to get in touch with the man in charge of my district, which I did. Having waited angrily three weeks for an answer, I climbed into my little Volkswagen and drove all the way to St. John's to see the Power Commission officials themselves. That my Volkswagen conked out on the trip and I had to get another car is not part of the story, but you can see how it might add to my anxiety and deplete my purse. Well, I finally reached the Commission office to find the inspector away. See the engineer, I was told. Now, my fear of engineers is softened only by the certainty that a special hell is reserved for those who plan roads and power lines. No wonder my electricity bills are so high. You should have seen their hangout. All carpets and shiny desks and enough people to run the government. Two small gentlemen, all scrubbed and shiny, awaited me, and what we said to each other, I will draw a veil over. It does not show me in a good light, for I'm always intimidated by authority when face to face with it. I know too well that one false move, one unkind word, and they can make my life unbearable. In the course of the discussion, I said I hadn't a reply to my letters, so the engineer phoned Stephenville. 
How that got into the picture, I didn't inquire, but pretty sure that someone had made an error. But the news came back that their head lineman had been to my house after I'd gone. A little horrified that anyone should drive over a hundred miles to see me without phoning to see if I was home, I said so and got the startled question, You really have phones out there? Heavens, we had them long before electricity, I said. By this time, I had been working on my problem for exactly eight weeks. Evenings were closing in, and darkness fell much too early for me to go to bed. So I invited myself to friends to spend the nights, which in itself presented problems, since my sons rarely wrote but telephoned after midnight from faraway places. Thank heaven I was on good terms with the phone operators, who agreed to transfer calls until I could alert family and friends as to what was going on. In week nine, a young man came, the chief linesman, and what a joy he was. I expect it must be the French in him, for on being invited in for coffee, he went into raptures about my view. And for the first time, I had a glimmer of hope. Of course he could see my problem, and together we viewed the situation until his eye lit on a big spruce outside the fence, and he said, "'Well, if we put a pole right beside it, that wouldn't spoil things much, now would it? Especially if you put the cable underground from the pole to your house.' I agreed. So before I could change my mind again, a truck full of men in red hard hats appeared and began digging a hole. Down they went, all of eighteen inches.' not nearly deep enough for a pole, so that was the end of that. Nothing daunted, they returned, built a three-by-three-foot box, about three foot deep, and piled cement into it. The more I looked, the sadder I got, but I told myself that I would pull away the box as soon as they left, and I'd paint the pole a nice green to match the trees. Next morning, the handyman turned up with a grin and a long piece of metal rod for a ground connection. I couldn't get the pipe down through the porch floor, he said. Too much rock there, so I swiped this rod this morning from outside the powerhouse. He promptly put the rod into place, finished his job and left. Meanwhile, the linesman had come and strung the wire from a pole by the lower road over the trees and onto my pole. It sagged alarmingly. Back he came after coffee and tightened up the line. The pole teetered and leaned out over the road. The cement box broke. The foreman came by to break the news that if only I would let them put a guy wire on my field, they could straighten up the pole. But that's just what I was trying to avoid, I said despairingly. He gave me to understand, since there was no topsoil anywhere, he couldn't see what anyone could do. However, if I agreed, they'd connect the power immediately. <sighs> so the pole and the guy wire stand like sentinels, but at least my house is now brightly lit. In the evenings, I sit and scheme how I can demolish pole, wire, bureaucracy, and everything that pollutes my environment in one great fell swoop. Eight years after she first moved into her house, and after much palaver back and forth with the Power Commission, they finally acquiesced, perhaps to keep Ella quiet. The power line would, at commission expense, be restrung over new poles brought over the hill behind her property and down through the woods to her house. At last the battle was won, and her views across the bay were clear and unobstructed. They remain so today. That was me, Anthony Berger, reading a story by the late Ella Manuel from the podcast series Down to Sally's Cove. 
This was recorded in the studios of VOBB, the Voice of Bombay, community radio in the heart of Grossmore National Park in western Newfoundland. Recording engineer and sound editor was Gary Wilton. Background music from Coffee in the Cove, written and played by David Berger. Together with a biography of my mother, these and other stories are available in book form entitled No Place for a Woman, The Life and Newfoundland Stories of El Emanuel, published in 2020 by Breakwater Books, St. John's, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thanks for listening.